Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 612 for the 30th of September, 2018. This week, open source software is secure, and it isn't secure. There's no one-size-fits-all statement about security. Both open source and proprietary applications are like Schrodinger's cat, simultaneously secure and not. Let's visit a recent conference by the Linux Foundation and learn a little more about security. In short circuits, the Federal Communications Commission wants to fine an Arizona company more than $37 million for making fraudulent robocalls. The password has a lot of enemies, and this week Microsoft, Google, and Yubi all announced ways to kill reliance on passwords. The next time you experience network problems, consider using Microsoft's PowerShell to investigate. We'll look at how. And in spare parts, only on the website. This week, 39 years ago, CompuServe introduced email to the general public, and they even trademarked the name email. And hardware insurance company Square Trade says the latest phones from Apple do survive being dropped into a vat of beer, but not being dropped onto the floor. You've probably heard that open source software is secure, and it is. And you've probably also heard that open source software is not secure. That's true, too. You would be forgiven for wondering how two polar opposites can be true, but they can. It's not the type of software. Some open source applications have been breached. So have some proprietary applications. Hold on to that thought. Software security was a topic of importance at a recent open source summit in Vancouver. One of the more interesting discussions featured Intel's chief software security officer, Window Snyder, and Linux Foundation executive director, Jim Zemlin. So how can open source software be secure and not secure at the same time? Well, that's easy. Implementation determines safety, just as it does with the safety of fire, an automobile, or electricity. All can be helpful or hazardous. It also depends on what kinds of threats are involved, and that's a topic that Zemlin explored with Intel's Windows Snyder, who explained that the threat landscape has changed. Things have really changed, There's, and it really depends on what they're, what kind of hacker we're talking about. When I was a teenager and, and, and working on this stuff, the goal was probably getting access to something you otherwise wouldn't have access to, whether that was an operating system or um, you know, a site with, with a lot of bandwidth. That, those were the objectives. And then they want to host um, copyrighted material or they want to put together a botnet to go spam folks. The, the objectives have completely changed. Now, in, instead of just grabbing the credentials or personal information off a machine and trying to monetize that. They're also leveraging your CPU time for mining Bitcoin. The, the landscape's completely different, right? So now we're also talking about more sophisticated hackers. This is not like, um, these are you know, nation states instead. And so instead of, let's say, compromising a machine we're, um, and, and, and taking what is present there, 
we're creating fake news and changing uh, election outcomes. And the stakes are, are so much higher. And the objectives are so much more sophisticated. So we don't know what we don't know. And tr trying to, uh, let's say, build an environment that mitigates risks that are so diverse. And it's hard for us to say what's going to be important for the future, but we're building the software that has to be resilient against tomorrow's threats today. That's an incredibly difficult problem. Next, Zemlin asked Snyder what she thinks has improved software security, and the answer wasn't exactly what he'd expected. I think one of the most important things to improve security has been the languages that have abstracted away from the developers, things like memory management or crypto. We definitely want to be in an environment where fewer people are, are implementing those things because it's, it's fraught with peril. Those are operations that are difficult to do securely. There's lots of ways to mess it up. So if you're able to write your code in a, in a higher level language where memory management's not an issue, then you're potentially reducing your risk for memory corruption issues. Uh, down to just what the what the platform exposes. That's a huge burden that's removed. So now we're not going through that code looking for potential memory corruption vulnerabilities. We're, we're looking for logic issues. We're looking for safe storage of secrets, that sort of thing. If you end up rolling your own crypto, you are creating all kinds of opportunities for problems. Whereas if you leverage from the platform the cryptographic libraries, and, and then on top of that, you apply best practices, now you've really reduced your risk pretty significantly. So this move to higher level languages has done more to improve application security than any developer training we could do, any work that we could do as a, a community of security researchers going out there and trying to review this code or do penetration testing or develop fuzz testing tools or, or any of the low level analysis that we could do, which is so expensive in terms of time and really requires a, a skill set that's not so widely available and all those folks have full-time jobs. Yeah, I think moving, moving applications to higher level languages is possibly the best thing we can do for application security. There is a story, perhaps an urban legend, that at one time Bill Gates ordered all software development at Microsoft to halt until everyone had received additional training in security. There's a difference, though, between a company like Microsoft and those who develop open source applications. Those who employ developers have a certain amount of leverage, but Zemlin wondered how open source developers can be encouraged to be more in tune with security needs. I think it's really hard when we're talking about folks who are working on software or working on projects because they want to, they've got their own idea of, of how they want to spend their time and maybe they don't think that the time that they spend working on security is going to be as important or valuable as the time they spend implementing new features. And by the way, this compromise is happening in every development environment. That new feature, that's something your users can feel. Capitalizing on this opportunity means that you know more people will use your code and that's very exciting. And it's very hard to say that the time you spend in security is going to have a, a measurable output because you don't have a problem until someone points it out to you necessarily. So you might actually be incredibly vulnerable. People might be taking advantage of the vulnerabilities in your code to compromise the environments that it's running in. And you won't necessarily know that this is happening. So creating, I think, a bar is, is probably the, the, the best thing we can do as a community to say that this is a critical skill for CS students, that it's part of all curriculum, that it's part of a development environment that you, that you do this work, that we do threat modeling, that we do identify security requirements for this code, that we discuss what the code is intended to mitigate and what it's not, so that when you're making decisions about how to use it in your environment, you can say, well, I'm going to have to mitigate this problem some other way because they're saying they're not resilient against these kinds of problems. Good, that's actually really helpful. Yeah. Saying that, um, uh, you know, exposing the, 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 the tools you're using for analysis to find vulnerability, because other folks might be able to build on that and, and, and change, for example, let's say this is, this is our, our suite of 
fuzz testers that we're using against this, this code base. Other folks can start from somewhere, they don't have to start from scratch and then build upon that. And, and we can leverage work that, that already exists in this, in this environment. So there might be somebody who wants to participate for a little while, but they don't necessarily have six months to invest or they're, you know, they've got a full-time something else that they're doing, but they're, they're interested in this project because of something that catches their attention for a yep. little while, make it a little bit easier to, to contribute um, more lightly. But I think raising, raising our standards for what constitutes a professional development environment and, uh, and what constitutes a professional software developer in terms of, 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 of creating those, those, those baseline security practices and, and skills. The next event, Open Source Summit 2019, will be held in San Diego from August 21st through the 23rd, 2019. Similar events that are sponsored by the Linux Foundation are held in Europe and Japan. The Foundation supports creation of sustainable open source ecosystems by providing financial and intellectual resources, infrastructure, service, events, and training as investments in the creation of shared technology. More than a million people have enrolled in the organization's free open source training courses, and about 25,000 people attend each of the Linux Foundation's annual events. The organization recently released a free 45-page electronic book that helps organizations assess the use of open source software. Enterprise Open Source, a Practical Introduction, is available for download without charge. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Topics covered include why to use open source applications, information about various open source business models, how to develop an open source strategy, important open source workflow practices, open source tools, and how to integrate open source code. In short circuits, perhaps we see a bit of relief from fraudulent robocalls, but only a bit. The Federal Communications Commission wants to levy a $37.5 million fine against an Arizona company that the commission says used false phone numbers to make more than 2 million telemarketing calls. Callers must either block caller ID or provide the real number from which the call originated. The FCC says that affordable enterprises presented phony numbers. Some of those were numbers not currently in use, but others were numbers used by real people or companies. In some cases, irate recipients of the phony calls called the reported number to complain. So this is a good first step from the FCC, but don't expect much to change. Affordable enterprises is unusual in that it's located in the United States, and therefore subject to action by the FCC. Most fraudulent calls come from overseas. Passwords are supposed to protect your data, but too many problems exist for them to succeed. People create weak passwords, reuse passwords, and accidentally give passwords to crooks. Three organizations are starting what might be the final assault on passwords. Microsoft is one of those organizations. The company already has facial recognition and fingerprint validations. Those are used by nearly 50 million people. 
Microsoft also has an authentication app that can be used to authenticate a user on various Microsoft and third-party accounts. The iOS and Android apps eliminate passwords with a combination of phone and fingerprint, facial recognition, or PIN for a multi-factor sign-in. Microsoft is extending these technologies to work with Azure, their cloud-based computing service for building, testing, deploying, and managing applications and services. It runs on the global network of Microsoft managed data centers. Azure provides software, platform, and infrastructure as a service, and it supports both Microsoft and third-party software systems. In other words, it's a big deal. This could go a long way toward eliminating passwords in organizations. Another option involves the use of physical USB tokens that authenticate a user when they're connected to the device. Google started selling such a device this week. The FOB acts as the second factor of a two-factor authentication system. Accessing important information would still require the username and password, both of which can be easily compromised. An account protected by a USB device wouldn't be accessible even if the crook obtains both the username and the password. Google's Titan security keys work with most browsers and with services such as Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Dropbox, and a lot of others. To work with a Titan security key, a site must support FIDO. FIDO stands for Fast Identity Online. FIDO is an open-source organization for authentication devices. Those keys are now available in the Google Store. At $50, Google's solution is a little more expensive than some competing options, but it does include two devices. One is a standard USB device, the other a Bluetooth unit. Google explains that one is for your primary use and the other is for safekeeping. The USB security key is used with a computer and the unit can connect to most Android devices that support USB or near-field connections. The Bluetooth security key works with iOS and Android devices. The Titan security key bundle works with all Google phones, Chromebooks, tablets, and anything running Google Chrome. Yubi is also selling a new version of their device. It's called the YubiKey 5. It incorporates near-field connections and FIDO 2. Users need to choose among four models that range in price from $45 to $60. Each device in the YubiKey 5 series supports a variety of options. You can see the full list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. To help users determine which of the four devices is the right one for them, the YubiCo website asks five questions about the equipment you want to protect and which services you want to use the key with. You'll find a link to that quiz on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You'll need to identify the type of USB port on the computer, decide whether you want to be able to use the key as an NFC device, whether you want to protect any password managers with the key, whether you want to leave the key in your computer or carry it around, and whether you want the key to unlock your Windows or Mac OS computer. So in a single week, three companies come out with challenges for passwords. I think the passwords days are numbered. And really, it's about time.
When a network problem crops up, you might use a command line function like ping or tracer to research the issue, but PowerShell has some more powerful tools. Let's take a look at some of them. Instead of either ping or traceroute, try test net connection. There's a switch if you want to use the traceroute function. Maybe you've used ipconfig to obtain some of the network information on your computer. Instead of that, try get net ip configuration. It'll return more useful information. Sometimes a connectivity issue can be remedied by flushing the DNS cache. Use clear DNS client cache. Like other commands in this series, this one doesn't return a response. A command for advanced users who want to see which connections are established on which ports is get net TCP connection. This will return a very long list, probably hundreds of lines, with local and remote addresses, local and remote ports, and status information. And a useful command for researching a website is resolve DNS name with the switch name and the name of the domain. That command will return the IP address for the server that you specify and the type of DNS record used. In some cases, you'll also see the IP4 address, the administrator ID, and some other information. Now, that's clearly not an inclusive list of PowerShell commands that can be used for network troubleshooting. And PowerShell is a far more complex and robust environment than what was provided by the command line. Fortunately, Microsoft has some free resources for learning how to use PowerShell, a good place to start is the Microsoft Virtual Academy. There's a link to the Academy from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And by the way, this Sunday is International Podcast Day. TechBiter Worldwide is an international podcast. And if you find yourself on the TechBiter Worldwide website, check out Spare Parts, because that's the only place it is. This week, 39 years ago, CompuServe introduced email to the general public, and they even trademarked the name email. And hardware insurance company SquareTrade says the latest phones from Apple do survive being dropped into a vat of beer, but they do not survive being dropped onto the floor. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.